welcome to the Unsettling Knowledge Podcast. My name is Rachel Gillette, and I'm a lecturer in history at Utrecht University. I'm here with my co-host, Melina. Hi, my name is Melina, and I'm the co-producer for this season, and I'm a grad student from Utrecht University. And today, we're speaking with Dr. Ozan Ozavci. We go behind the scenes of his new book, Dangerous Gifts, Imperialism, Security, and Civil Wars in the Levant, 1798 to 1864. We began by asking Ozan to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to write the book. Well, thank you, Rachel Malina, for your kind invitation. I'm very happy to be here. So my name is Ozan Ozauti. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of history at Utrecht University. So how I came to write the book? Well, I came to Utrecht in 2015 as a postdoctoral researcher to work at an European Research Council-funded project titled Securing Europe, Fighting Its Enemies. So the project, uh, led by my idea colleague Beatrice de Graaf, looks into the emergence of a European security culture, whereby a multipolar world order, the self-defined great powers of the time, Austria, Britain, France, Prussia, and Russia came up with new norms and practices such as non-intervention in each other's affairs, conference diplomacy, and avoiding territorial changes without consulting each other. So the, the, the project looks into the emergence of this culture, these patterns of behaviors, these shared perceptions of threats, interests, and corresponding practices. My sub-project looked into the collective European intervention in the Ottoman civil war, the civil war in Ottoman Syria in 1860. The civil war was fought between two sectarian groups, the Christian Maronites and the Druze. More than 10,000 people died at the time and created this huge hysteria in Europe, especially because tens of thousands became refugees and especially the majority of those killed were Christians. It sparked an intervention on the part of these major European powers. An international commission was sent there. And my initial plan was to look at why the powers intervened and how the international commission sent to Syria would uh, operate on the ground. So it would be a micro-historical book. But I was struck by a set of questions. By what right? I wondered, did these European great powers intervene in the civil war and find in themselves the right and responsibility to supply security in the Levant, Ottoman Levant at the time? By what right, especially given the fact that the sovereign authority, arguably sovereign authority, the Ottoman Empire, was opposed to the intervention? What were the legal grounds that enabled their involvement in the crisis? Or put it simply, how did it all begin? And I suppose you kind of answered that question in terms of what you felt was missing already from um, the existing scholarship already. Um, you kind of found that within this book and in, in what you wanted to, to kind of focus on, right? That's, that's true. The genealogy of Western armed interventionism in the Middle East. In fact, it has been subject to analysis before, but only episodically. 
But there have been no studies that that have looked at these different episodes uh, panoramically, that traced the links and continuities between them, the patterns of behaviors, those uh, uh, hidden biographical histories that connected these episodes with one another. And that was my aim in this book, to show on the one hand, how these different episodes were interlinked with one another, but at the same time, to foreground the much neglected agency of Levantine, be it Ottoman Imperial or subject peoples, their agency, because that was quite a missing link in the literature on the Eastern question. Actually, how do you think about this word agency? What do you mean by agency? Uh, I always find this a difficult concept to to grasp. But agency, what I mean is the capacity of actors, whoever they may be, to inform and transform historical change. I think that's wonderful. And I also was struck by the title of the book. Now, the full title is Dangerous Gifts, colon, Imperialism, Security and Civil Wars in the Levant, 1798 to 1864. But of course, we all always just say dangerous gifts. And I, for one, think of a Trojan horse, which disguises something perilous. It's just such a a tantalizing title. How did you come up with it? Dangerous Gifts is an intervention in a hidden debate between two major scholars of the history of the Middle East. One of them is Late Fuad Ajami of Stanford University, and the other one is Edward Said, the Palestinian scholar, literary critic, and um, the, the man uh, who came up with the term Orientalism in his, with his works in the 1970s onward. In the run up to the American invasion of Iraq in 2003, one of these scholars, Fuad Ajami, was acting as a consultant of the neoconservatives. Ajami argued at the time in 2003 that the British Empire's moment in Iraq had come after World War I. But London was economically exhausted and it failed. It was now the United States' time in Iraq. The aim should be, above and beyond toppling the regime of Saddam Hussein, improving conditions in Iraq, transforming the country for the better. And he expected, he argued that the Iraqis would receive the intervening powers with open arms, celebrating their arrival. Three years later, in 2006, he wrote a book. And in that book, he he wrote that the, the war was an attempt to drive out this despotic leader, Saddam Hussein, and his little regime. This is why the war, the intervention, was a legitimate imperial mission, to quote him. It was, as the title of the book says, a foreigner's gift to the Iraqi inhabitants. It was a noble war. 
and only time will show whether it was a noble success or a noble failure. On the other side, on the day of the invasion of Iraq began in March 2003, Edward Said would anxiously warn against these accounts on benign imperialism. He would say that we should be careful because seeing American imperial power as enlightened and even altruistic as the uh, proponents of the war would, were arguing is a trap. And he would say that these empires would look at the distant reality through what Anne Kaplan later uh, called through an imperial gaze. I find both sides and Ajami's accounts impressionistic because, well, they use the term imperialism indistinctly, even if not pejoratively, and is owed possibly to the contested nature of the notion of empire on the one hand, and more importantly, the absence of a coherent body of scholarship on the intricate relationship between foreign interventionism in the Middle East and, uh, and imperialism. So what I did in the book was to engage in this dialogue and show that if you look at the origins, if you substantiate the history of foreign armed interventionism by looking at archival sources, by looking at individual experiences, local and imperial, or group experiences, what we find that interventionism through an imperialistic hubris tends to be counterproductive. And the gifts that Ajami speaks of appear to be nothing but dangerous. Now that's such a wonderfully fitting title that really embodies kind of everything that, you know, your book is, is talking about. Um, the book also places emphasis, as you said, on paying attention to the local Levantine actors um, beyond them playing a sole role of, quote, uh, junior roles in the power game. Um, so how was your experience in finding the sources and accessing archives in doing so to sort of highlight this side? This was a difficult process, I would say. One of the main reasons um, for, for the literature of the Eastern question to partly omit, partly neglect, and partly overlook the agency of local actors was the unavailability of sources for those who produced the literature on the Eastern question. This story has been told mainly from the perspective of major European empires. But what was at stake in the end was the fate and future of the last major Islamic empire. And what the Ottomans thought about it, how they reacted to it, and how they tried to even manipulate the Eastern question through their own speech acts. And by Ottomans, I refer not only to the imperial authorities, but the subject peoples. So the question is, how would I reach out to sources? Of course, the go-to address is Ottoman imperial archives in Istanbul. And the main problem with Ottoman imperial archives in Istanbul is that you have to work with the Ottoman Turkish language of early 19th century. If you don't read Arabic and Persian in addition to Turkish and Ottoman Arabic script, that's a very challenging language. It takes sometimes 
days, maybe up to a week to read a document that is not written with clear handwriting. And sometimes you spend a week to find nothing. So it's a frustrating process. It takes a lot of time to work with Ottoman archives, and especially if you want to do a multi-archival research, that is very challenging because it's not only about how the Ottomans saw this in question, but how we can embed the Ottoman Empire into a contrapuntal story, meaning bringing under the same analytical framework the agency of both European and Ottoman, imperial and local actors. I was very fortunate that the project was funded by European Research Council, which allowed me to enlist the assistance of a number of wonderful scholars from Syria, Lebanon, and Egypt who did archival research for me. I would want to have more funding at my disposal and uh, enlist the support of a researcher in Greek who would work in Greek archives as well. And unfortunately, the sources produced by the Druze, they cannot be found anywhere. So what I did instead was I focused on petitions written by these Druze Lebanese actors to the imperial authorities, and I tried to give place to their voice by looking at these petitions and how they represented themselves. I almost leaped in there because that was going to be part of my question. By the uh, by the time you get to this chapter called Beginnings, this is where you really engage with the, the local story and you do that through this Druze family. Uh, I And you can correct my pronunciation, but the Jumblats. And I was really struck by your description of um, Bashir too, dubbed, and I'm quoting here, dubbed the Red Emir because of his red beard and his shrill and brutal methods of oppressing his opponents, Bashir II eliminated the Jumblat's rivals one by one. He reduced dynastic quarrels using great force. Uh, and I just, it's such a vivid picture. And then it enables me to kind of place all the other intersectional, interfactional uh, conflicts you describe. And I love how you go in and through the Jumblats, you say, actually, the situation on the ground in Mount Lebanon then shaped international politics just as much as international politics um, mobilized or utilized that situation on the ground. I thought that was such a compelling analysis. Um, and it actually, it does real work in terms of subverting maybe a tendency in international relations history to look at great actors. Um, but I had a curious question. This red Amir, did you actually like him or was he a horrible chap? Uh, I'm not sure I like or dislike my historical actors. I mean, it depends on how you like to read this story. I did not grow any emotions toward him, but I did find the fact that he remained loyal to Mehmed Ali, the Pasha of Egypt, who supported him in his interpersonal and interfeudal rivalries with the Jambalads and other Druze families. Bashir remained loyal to Mehmed Ali until the very end, that's, and that's what led him to be driven out 
from Lebanon in 1840, October 1840. And the fact that he tried to come back, it was one of the reasons for a cycle of civil wars to erupt in Mount Lebanon in the end. But he's a very interesting figure, absolutely. I know you mentioned a little bit about this before, but I wanted to speak about the way in which the book portrays the legacies of empire and specifically the parallels between um, the Western interventions in the book during this period and Western interventions um, today. Um, Because there was one particular narrative that I noticed, and that is the language that is used to describe the Ottoman Empire using barbarians, uncivilized, which is obviously quite often used. Do you think that this imperial lens is still adopted um, by Western countries today in the way that they view and interact with other countries? I mean, let's think about the wider Middle East and Western Asia now. Let's think about Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Yemen. They are all embroiled in civil wars of sorts or political instabilities in one way or another. And one of the things that I try to claim in the book, argue in the book, is the fact that the situation these Middle Eastern societies find themselves in today has been the rule, not the exception. In almost two centuries of uh, history of foreign armed interventionism, this vast area has found itself in a bottomless security paradox, meaning an ever-increasing demand for security despite its alleged supply by foreign and rich Western here powers. Since the late 18th century, Nearly each foreign intervention undertaken in in these regions purportedly for the benefit of the locals. These have tended to result in civil wars, military coups, resistance to revolutions, or, I don't know, ultimately the establishment of of, of an oppressive domestic order. But where does this come from? Why is this why is there is this security paradox? So one of them is the inattentive nature of interventionism, as I said, this desire to transform a local reality in the metropoles without actually fully understanding the complexities in the locales on the ground. Which as Edward Tate would say, woefully and inadequate knowledge of social, political, cultural, economic dynamics on the ground. And these local complexities have been reduced to a spurious juxtaposition of, as Malina, you said, of civilized and barbarian, entitled and undeserving. These are the very phrases that have been used in the past 200 centuries, both in the late 18th century and, sadly, today. But the one element is Mm -hmm. these have been used not only by Western actors or Northern actors. The Ottomans themselves have also appropriated these, the Ottoman imperial legends. They tended to see the Lebanese, the Egyptians, whatever you, as the barbarian others in an attempt to fend off great power interventionism. We are all empires. 
we are capable of acting as the master of our own house against the barbarian other within our empire. So it's also appropriated by the Ottoman elites. There is this appropriation also on the part of subject peoples eventually. Think about what Aime Césaire or Franz Fanon write. I was thinking about Césaire and Fanon as well, and also about Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois in America, for example, and how... Uh, it's not just the the trans-imperial, but it's also across different subjugated peoples, as you said, where uh, the language of civilization and barbarism is internalized. And I mean, but this makes me think of agency where some of the educated elite of, for example, African-Americans or uh, French um, Caribbeans or French Africans, Francophone Africans, advocating for their own independence, is it internalization or is it a very clever deployment of the language that is respected by the people who has colonized them to kind of fight back against that colonization? And I think there is uh, an agency story there about how educated elites deploy the language, use the language of the Enlightenment that is understood by European powers to then contest or shape their own reality. But I do think that sits in tension with internalizing some of these definitions. And I was thinking about that as reading your book as well, while reading your book as well. But this is quite an uh, abstract conversation or quite an elite conversation. And I was wondering for a classroom if I wanted to assign this book to a, a set of, say, university students, and many of whom, like me, um, grapple with this very complex uh, Eastern question with who is fighting who in Syria at this stage and what is the you know, European intervention in it, which chapter of your book would you recommend and why or which couple of chapters would you recommend and why to a poor, frazzled university lecturer trying to uh, tackle this subject for a, perhaps an undergrad or a first-year master's level graduate class of students? About whether the language of civilization was uh, deployed for pragmatic reasons or whether it was internalized, I agree with you, Rachel. It depends, and it can be both. I think it's also context-dependent. If you look at the Ottoman ministers in 1830s, they used it mainly for pragmatic reasons. They encountered with the term civilization for the first time, and they were trying to enable a foreign intervention, a collective foreign intervention, by deploying the language of civilization, as I show in the book. By 1920s and 30s, if you look at Republican Turkey, the Kemalist elites, they looked at these, as they would call it, the rural Anatolian population, conservative population, and con conservative Kurdish population with a similarly imperialistic hubris and deploying the very same language of civilization that lasts in Turkey to this date. That's a complex story. To go back to your question on education <laughs> chapters, of course, I like every chapter 
equally they're all my children i can't of say course. one is better than the other <laughs> um and i must say i'm already i'm very happy that the book is already being used in uh for for teaching at different universities at leiden amsterdam at cornell uh and uh switzerland and italy i can't remember the names of the universities again it depends on what is the target but if you want to look at the origins of the very beginnings of western armed interventionism in the levant then i would advise you use the first couple of chapters chapter one and two or maybe up to three in your teaching to see the changing dynamics of relationship between european empires and ottoman empire how the ottoman empire had initially been seen as a threat to european security because of its military might and then how this perception changed with the ottoman empire's alleged decline with its relative weakness how this relative weakness continued to pose a threat because the weakness was also an opportunity for many european empires and those who could control the prized morsels of the ottoman empire could unsettle the balance of power and that's chapter one and in the second chapter you could see how the ottomans were reacting to this or and you can teach chapter 13 which is the story of the international commission that was sent to syria in 1860 and it covers how after a gruesome civil war trust was brought to table and was sought to be introduced among the local populations that had been fighting each other how the process of reparations worked and how while the so-called great powers were trying to introduce security they were at the same time furthering their own individual interests and how it makes the situation ever more complex and i think it's about seeing that those imperial actors that were trying to transform a region could not truly see these complexities while they were trying to change syria i think that is the added value of this book because it's a very same mistake that we continue to do today that's fantastic and actually i heard you uh talk about foolhardy interventions and this reminds me of one of my favorite passages from your book so i'm going to read a little bit and ask if you have any further reflections um based on the very link you make between past and present in that final passage that you've been leading us through this whole podcast so i'll just read a bit and then ask you to comment so this is from the epilogue political actors both western and regional keep tossing their resources into the infinite complexities of the region at the expense of exhausting their economies and polities and provoking even greater misfortune on the ground seen from the perspective of the last two centuries we can conclude that they do so with a haughtiness and pomposity akin to that of their imperial forebears in the late 18th and 19th centuries just as ajami and the neo conservatives depicted the 2003 invasion of iraq as a quote foreigners gift unquote despite their push and pull factors each historical intervention covered in this book was almost without exception initiated by their entrepreneurs under the facades of quote 
disinterested service, aid, favor, priceless grace, or friendly assistance to the Levantine inhabitants. Needless to say, the discourse of noble disinterestedness was always a beguiling delusion. This is why, as is the case today, great power interventions tended to bring to the 19th century Levant only further vulnerability and insecurity through heightened antagonisms, new rivalries and contentions. However goodwilled they might have been, the repercussions of these gifts proved to be nothing but detrimental and dangerous. And that is the last sentence of your book. And that is where the title of the book comes from. Just to make it clear, by just reading this passage, the readers or the listeners might be misguided with the uh, idea that what I argue is that foreign interventionism is wrong and dangerous. That's not quite the case. What I argue in the book is not focusing on whether or not to intervene, because intervention might be necessary if, say, in Syria, a president is using chemical weapons. But what matters is how to intervene, through what lens, who are the net uh, beneficiaries? Do you say beneficiaries? Who are the who are the people that benefit the most from interventionism? Is it the military complex? Who makes most profit in the long run? What changed in Afghanistan in the last twenty years? We need to consider this through a holistic lens and through by looking into historical continuities in the ambitions goals and actions of historical actors, past and present. So this is the point that I'm trying to make. I think that's wonderful. And it's so nice to hear um, like an audio of the book as well. It's it's really nice. Um, but no, I want to thank you for your reflections um, on the book and sharing it all with us. I wanted to ask about your future work. Do you have any upcoming plans, a new book in store? What, what are your plans for yourself? Well, yes, as an academic, there are always plans. And uh, in fact, I, I have a spin-off project that comes from Dangerous Gifts. I've collected quite a lot of materials while writing Dangerous Gifts and quite a lot of materials from the National Library of Scotland, where you can find the private papers of the Scottish diplomat, Robert Liston, and his wife, Henrietta Liston. They were... Uh, in Istanbul in 1790s, Robert was there in 1790s, and the couple in 1810s, when a new international global order was uh, established. And I'd want to write an emotional history of diplomacy, foregrounding the agency of female actors, cultural encounters in the ambassadorial district of Istanbul called Pera. And the title of the book is the Secrets of Pera, the Eastern Question in the Embassies of uh, Roberts and Henrietta Liston. It will come out with uh, Bloomsbury. Well, my contract suggests it will come out this year, but that's not happening. <laughs> so hopefully next year, but that depends. So that's that's my new project I'm working on. Um, this book uh, 
late at night as much as my teaching allows me. I, for one, am super excited about that. I uh, and, and Bloomsbury is a, a great press. Everybody can get hold of this book. Uh, and so I look forward to it with great anticipation. But Ozan, thank you. That was such a fantastic conversation and I really learned a lot. And also it was just wonderful to hear you, the author, talking about your uh, interpretations and the knowledge you bring through this book to the world. So thank you for sharing that knowledge with us. Yes, definitely. Thank you, Ozan. It's been wonderful to hear the insights behind your book. And we'll also put a link to Ozan's book in the information box below. Thank you, Ozan. Thank you, Marina. And thank you, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in learning more about how you can help with the Ukrainian war and the efforts of the Ukrainian people, do check out our previous episodes. Also, stay tuned for our upcoming episode discussing the film adaptation June and analyzing its colonial legacies, plus many more. Take care and catch you in the next one. Bye from Rachel. And bye from Melina.